in Elul, right, we're in the month of Elul, and right, I am to my loved one, my loved one is to me. It is the month of tshuva. It is the month of returning, of uh, repenting, and returning back to Hashem, and saying that even if up until now, indeed I have failed multiple times, now this is the, now we're going to be back on the positive team. We're going to start accruing merits. I heard a beautiful idea this morning. This week's parsha is parsha kitetze la milchama alovecha, and we talk about the famous, not apocryphal, it's not really the right word, but almost I guess apocryphal might be the right word. The story of the bensora umora, right? The person, the rebellious son, and about whom the Torah tells us under specific, very, very limiting conditions, he will actually be executed at a very young age, even before he did anything for which the death penalty is really warranted, but the Torah says that he will be executed. Why? And the answer is, the Talmud explains, because we are worried that if we don't execute him now, he'll end up doing something far worse, and therefore we prefer to execute him before he's done such terrible things that we see him on a path to end up on. Okay? That's what the Talmud tells us. Now, the the reason why I call it apocryphal is because the Talmud tells us, according to the main opinion in the Talmud, this story has never actually happened. There's never been someone who fulfilled all of these different conditions. So what, after all, is the Gemara trying to tell us? What's I'm sorry, what's the Torah trying to tell us with this lesson? The Torah is trying to tell us a lesson in Chinuch, a lesson in educating children. Right? And therefore, it's given us very specific conditions for how we ought to educate our children, a consistency between spouses, similar <clears throat> messaging, a recognition of the fallibility of humans, right? But then a belief in their ability to get back up again. And these are lessons that the Torah is trying to teach. And it teaches us in this very fascinating, incredibly cruel sounding story, so as to make it very, very easy to remember. And something that will, it's an explosive story, very dramatic, something that we will not forget. So what I heard this morning is a fascinating idea. The Talmud, the Torah tells us that the parents have to bring their own child into court and say, our son is not listening to our voice. Okay? And if they don't go through that step, the court will not execute. Okay? Now, if they do go through that step, the court will execute. Why? Because there's this recognition that given the trend line for this person uh, against the trend line of the rest of the world, the trend line for this person is certainly trending very badly and he will end up in a terrible place and therefore execute him now so as to stop him from getting to that next step. But then the Talmud tells us if the parents then walk right back into court and say, we changed our mind, we forgive. What did he do? What he did is he stole a certain sum of money from his parents. He bought a prodigious amount of meat, a prodigious amount of wine, and he pounded it all in one small, very, you know, uh, a Nathan's hot dog eating contest type of meat, basically, and a commensurate amount of wine, and he drank it all in one, one fell swoop, and he stole money from his parents. Now, if the parents are then to say, come back into court and say, you know what, we forgive him. We forgive him. The court says we don't execute. <laughs> one second. You just told me you're going to execute this kid. Because his trend line is so bad that if you don't execute him now, he'll end up doing something so bad that you will, so much worse, we'd rather just kill him now. Get it over with so he doesn't do that thing in the future that we are concerned that he'll do. Okay, his parents come back in and say, we forgive. Now you don't kill him? Well, what just changed? The answer is pretty obvious. The answer is when the parents come back in and say, we forgive. You know what they're doing? What they're doing is they're telling their son, we believe in you, and we believe that you have the power to change. 
when he hears his parents say that, that effectively completely changes that trend line. He will no longer reach that space that he was going to reach. Right? Now, why is that effective? It's a very effective idea for us. Right? That's not just for parents and children. Of course, it is for parents and children as well. But it's also for ourselves. Right? It's, it's the time of Teshuvah. And we have a Yetzirah whispering in our ear these sweet little nothings about how we will not be able to change and we will be the same person next year and the same person the year after. So what's the point of it all anyways? Right? Just go out and have a good time. And you're not really going to change. You are who you are. Right? I have a student of mine who um, she was recently with her parents for the first time in a while. And her parents told her, like, you know, why are you doing all this religious stuff? Come on, you're not really a religious person. That's not who you are. You know, you're not really religious. Right. And so she was shook, totally shook. She's like, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm not really religious. Maybe this is all a fraud. Right. And if her parents would have told her, we respect what you're doing. We understand what you're doing. She would have felt great about it. Right. But if you believe in yourself, <clears throat> then you have the power to change. If you don't believe that you have the power to change, it's never going to happen, right? Power, powerful idea, powerful idea. Which leads us to what we're up to in this monastery. We are up to uh, page 107 or 106 in the Hebrew. And what we did previously is, so we started talking about what we call Mashiach's time period. We started talking about that on page 104. The first, <clears throat> sorry, page 106. And the first part uh, of that. Can you, I don't have the same sidor, so if you can say the yeah. bracha that you're referring mm -hmm. to. So the first bracha that starts talking about the times of Mashiach is bracha number seven. Uh, seven, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I take it back. Number 10. Bracha number 10 is the first bracha that starts talking about the times of Mashiach. And that will be the blessing of Kibbutz Goliut. I mean, the ingathering of the exiles. That's the first blessing that starts describing a future time period, a request not for this time period, not for the present time period, but for the future time period. And in that request for the future time period, we start talking about the shofar. And then Hashem is going to gather in the exiles. And that will be the beginnings of the steps of the geula, right, of the redemption. In theory, <clears throat> other than the... Um, the shofar part, you can make the argument that indeed we are already in the time period of the beginnings, the haschala sagaula, right? It's something that in many Orthodox shows they say at Shabbos, a demishaberach for the state of Israel, and then they say it's about the judges. So we read it like this: Hashiva shoftenu kevarishona v'yatzenu kevatechila. Restore our judges as in earliest times, and our counselors as at first. What is this a reference to? Who are the judges? Who are the advisors? Is there a difference between Rishona and Kivat Chila? It's like this. What is the role of a judge? So the role of a judge, we, we've learned this together, many of us. We learned this together when we learned the, the Navi, Shoftim. And we learned what is a Shofit supposed to do, right? What is a judge supposed to do? And what we learned is, is that without a judge to kind of put people on the right path, we fall into a pattern of everybody does that which is good in their own eyes. And that is not healthy at all, right? This is a un-American idea. It's something that for um, America, we Americans are used to, we can do what I want and don't tell me what to do, right? Um, live free or die, New Hampshire's motto, right? But, the, but the, that's not true. That's not true at all. And the Torah tells us this multiple times. We have a Torah and the Torah tells us how to live. We don't 
have the right, we have the right to do whatever we want. We have free will, but that's not smart. We want to do the right thing. And the right thing is to listen to the Torah. And a shofet, as an objective person who has power of authority over us, can really exert that influence to help us do the right thing. So what we say is we need the shoftim to push us to do the right thing. But a shofet implies action. In other words, not just when someone comes to you and says, hey, listen, should I be doing this or not? An advisor would say, well, you shouldn't do that. Well, you should do that. A shofet is going to say, you better stop that or else. Right? The shofet will employ the use of the shoter, right? the policeman, right, to ensure that Klal Yisrael, that Jewish society is acting in the right ways. So a shofet is the person who has the power to actually force us to do the right thing, whereas Yoatzenu is someone who is going to advise us. What's an example of a Yoatzenu? Yoatzenu is a prophet, is a navi. Okay, so the navi comes and tells us this is the right thing to do, and that is kivat chila, as in the original, right at very first times. The shofet continues, perhaps even past the times of the neviim. And therefore, we say a shofet like at the as in earlier times, and the yatzenu is like the, only in the in the beginning itself. And then then remove from us sorrow and groan, because what will happen is the sorrow and groan that we have, right? The right? It is difficult to be a Jew, right? What does that come from? What does that ultimately come from? That ultimately comes from the fact that we are not accomplishing what we ought to be accomplishing. I heard a line last week. I read it actually in a book last week. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Shiner. Rabbi Yitzchak Shiner was a, was a beautiful person, a fascinating story. He died last year during COVID. He was, I think, 99 years old. I believe he was born in 1922. He was like the senior uh, Rosh Hashiva, senior head of schools in Israel. And Rizek Shiner was born Isidore Shiner in, um, in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to parents who were immigrant parents. And actually, unlike many, many Jews who had moved to America going way back, you know, to early 1900s, they actually kept kosher and they kept Shabbos. And they had their son. He was a brilliant, brilliant fellow. He was a chess prodigy and a math prodigy. And he got accepted to, I think, University of Pittsburgh. And he was going to go get a degree in mathematics. And he wanted to be a math professor one day. And there was a, a rabbi who came out to Pittsburgh. And he told his parents, you know, there's something called the yeshiva in New York where he can learn Torah half the day and, 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 and you know, pursue college studies later on in the afternoon. And his parents were like, what? Yeshivas in America? No such thing as yeshiva in America. You must be crazy. As I know, there's a yeshiva in America. And so he came, he went to this yeshiva in America. He ended up becoming this great, great rabbi and married a, uh, a really great rabbi's granddaughter. And like I said, he passed away last year. But he said something, he said something pretty, pretty interesting. He said, a Jew who keeps the mitzvahs properly will never say, because that will become a effective way, a effective litmus test for value in one's life. Right? If, if we have to define, let me explain. If we have to define what's the purpose of life, right? So for most of us, we'll say maybe it's to follow what Hashem wants, to be a good person. We'll come up with these different answers. 
ultimately for most people, the purpose of life or the way in which they will most effectively accomplish their purpose, their mission, would be to feel valued, right? To feel valued, whether that's self-value or whether that's value as ascribed to in other people's eyes. The way that works is though, if you're fulfilling your mission, if you're productive, you feel valuable and you feel valued. <clears throat> so if you have if you have somebody who's doing the Torah and the mitzvahs properly, he's going to feel that he's of value. She's going to feel that she's of value. They're doing what they ought to be doing in life. They'll never say, they'll never say it's difficult to be a Jew. They'll say, it is awesome. It is great to be a Jew because they're going to feel they're doing something of purpose. They're doing the right thing. They will lead a happy life. Okay? So the groans, the groans and the sorrow is persecutions that are surrounding us. But they stem from the fact that we're not doing the right thing. Because if we were doing the right thing, these persecutions would all go away. They'd melt away rapidly. And reign over us. You, Hashem, alone. So certainly a um, interesting dynamic over here between, uh, between Queen Elizabeth passing away yesterday. And... Um, and talking about Hashem reigning over us, right? So the closest sort of parallel that we have to a king today is, let's say, the monarchy in, in England. Of course, we know that the monarchy in England is ceremonial. It doesn't actually have any power at all, right? It doesn't do anything. When, when I heard that she had um, she had uh, invested, or I don't know what that's called, but when, when you take the, the next prime minister and they come and they get like her blessing or something, the way I'm picturing it, given the fact that she... She was under medical supervision and died 12 hours later, whatever it was. She probably was totally out. There was nothing that she was doing. It's more a ceremonial thing that they bring the prime minister to the queen. And she walks into the room with the queen. And then they call it. Okay, now you've been. Am I, am I wrong, David? You are wrong. Um, <laughs> what else is new? <laughs> what, what happened? You're, you're there right. There is a Netflix uh, series. You can watch it about that. <laughs> okay, I don't need to watch it. But the, the queen does have power? Yeah, uh, well, she doesn't have the power that the queen formerly had. There's no question about that. But the prime ministers have always lived in fear of their audiences with the queen over the past um, 60, 70 years because she stayed on top of them and on top of what was happening. So on the one hand, she didn't have given authority, but behind that curtain, she absolutely had great power over the direction taken by the prime ministers. Influence. Yes. <laughs> exactly. okay, that, might be, that might be, I can't, I can't argue, I don't know. But I can tell you this, whatever sort of power she had and whatever sort of power, which was dwarfed, of course, by what, let's say, um, King Henry III had, right? You know, going back a couple of hundred yeah. years, and cer certainly before um, Magna Carta and so on, right? So whatever sort of power that is dwarfed is even more dwarfed when we talk about Hashem. Right? Yeah. So so the, the ceremonial power that she had, honestly, the other kings also really just had ceremonial power in on some level because ultimately everything flows through Hashem. So even the other kings is really also just ceremonial power after all. It's ceremonial power that they don't think it's ceremonial and we don't always recognize that it's just ceremonial, but it's really just them waving a hand as a, as a musician and then having the off-center off person, you know, off-stage person pressing a button that really causes 
the the, uh, the reaction or whatever it might be, right? So when we talk about is reigning over us, we say reign over us, you, Hashem, alone. Alone, without any intermediaries, without having the ceremonial kings or queens or prime ministers or presidents or whatever it might be. We ask is first, if you bring us back our judges and our counselors, that's going to have to be the first step. Because we will never be able to do our teshuva properly. We will never be able to properly repent, properly believe in ourselves and start doing the right thing on a consistent basis as a whole, right? And I don't speak to individuals. I speak as a whole to the Jewish nation until we have our judges and our counselors back. Once the judges and counselors come back, then sorrow and groan can be removed from us. And only then will we be worthy of reigning over us from Hashem. Okay? So what we're, we're saying, oh, bring us a shofate. Why? Because we want to have our own king. No, bring us a shofate to bring us to the place where we can have our own king. When we say king, we mean Hashem. So said in last week's Torah portion, in Parashat Shoftim, Hashem gives Moshe Rabbeinu the mitzvah of that the Jewish people should have a king. Right? But then what happens is, when the Jewish people actually ask Yeshua for a king, I'm sorry, Navi, Navi Shmuel for a king, he's not happy at all, right? Samuel, he's like, what are you asking for a king for? You're like all the other nations of the world. And the thing is, one second, didn't the Torah say that the Jewish people should have a king? Well, the answer is, what is the perspective of what the king is supposed to do? What is his role? What is his mission? So according to what the Torah wants, the Jewish king's role is to bring us back to Hashem. According to... What the Jewish people were asking then is they wanted a king like the, all the other nations of the world. They wanted to be just like everyone else. And that was not okay. So what we say to Hashem is first give us back our judges. First give us back our counselors. And then that will lead us down the right path. And then we'll get to a place where we will no longer do the wrong thing. We will remove from us sorrow and groan. And then we ask Hashem please reign over us as our only king. We say with kindness and compassion. And justify us through judgment. So let's look at the Hebrew for a moment. Umalochaleinu ata, and you shall rule over us. Hashem levatcha, or by yourself, without any partners, so to speak, without any intermediaries. Bechesed uberachamim. So first, what we say is meloch, right? Meloch means to rule over us. Then what we say is bechesed uberachamim. Okay. Chesed, kindness, rachamim, compassion. Now. What's interesting to know is like this. There's a difference between a melech and a moshel. Moshel is an authoritarian who imposes his rule not through the consent of the people. He coercively rules over the people. A melech is someone. It's not someone, or in this case, God, who actually has the ability to rule over us with the consent of the people. So we say to Hashem, please, meloch aleinu, Rule over all of us with our consent. But you by yourself, and do this with chesed and rachamim. However, there is still another component. Vitzadkenu ba mishpat. Now, tzedek and mishpat are very similar words, right? Tzedek is also a reference to justice, right? So it's righteousness. Tzedek is righteous one, right? Tzedek means to do righteousness through judgment. In this case, what it means is your judgment should be tempered through a level of, of kindness, right? So if tzedek means right, tzedek means right, everything should be in the right place, everything should be the right the right way, okay? But that, that being said, mishpat is something that is about separating between different people, is about making sure that justice is served. But that justice is served 
with this side helping of tzedek. As the Gemara and Sanhedrin tells us about King David and really about any good judge, you cannot favor one side or the other. You can't favor the weak. You can't favor the strong. So that means it's like this. That means is you have someone who comes into court and he says, listen, my, my landlord wants to evict me. And well, why does he want to evict you? Well, I haven't paid the rent in 12 months. Why not? I can't afford it. But the landlord has an apartment. He's not, you can't force someone to give you a space for free, right? So the landlord has the right to evict. So what would a true judge do? What a true judge would say is, okay, the rule is indeed he has the right to evict you. Slam the gavel down, evicted. Then he'll go outside of court and he'll meet the person who's just been evicted and said, okay, I'm going to find you another apartment and I'm going to give you rental assistance for the first you know, 18 months. I'm going to help you get back on your feet. So that's the true way to do justice. Justice has to be justice. You cannot play around with justice. But a judge who has the proper perspective says, I have to administer justice. After I administer justice, then what I'm going to do is I'll make sure that the poor person is taken care of. Right? So that's what we ask from Hashem. There should be justifying, there should be justice that is administered, but with compassion. Blessed are you, Hashem, the king who loves righteousness and judgment. And this is a reference to, in, in Yeshayo, in Isaiah, we constantly make reference to the fact that Hashem hates, hates, there's nothing Hashem hates more than dishonest judgment. Because dishonest judgment completely corrupts and perverts the entire rule of this world. It takes what should be a olam hashalom, a peaceful world, a world where there is shleimut, where there is completeness, where people are getting what they ought to be getting and are not getting what they ought not to be getting and changes it completely. So Hashem loves righteousness and judgment and he hates what is not righteous and what is not correct judgment. So we say restoration of justice. So after the gathering of exiles, there has to be restoration of justice. Once restoration of justice can take place, then we're ready to go on to the next step, right? And the next step in terms of okay. the Geula process. Yeah. And then why does this mean, uh, why when we have that, why do we correlate it with uh, removal of the sorrow? Uh, removal of the sorrow can be, um, you know, if we are justice, not, if we do the right thing, not necessarily if we have a judge. Well, that's what's going to help us get to the right path, right? If somebody walks in and says, hey, I want to do the right thing. But you know what I want to do? What I want to do is I want to, and I'm not calling out any denominations right now, but it says I want to do the right path. And I know that Judaism wants us to seek justice and do good. So I'm going to seek justice and do good. And what? how are you going to define seeking justice and doing good? I'm going to crowdsource my information. Well, I'll basically say to everyone, hey, do you think this is a good thing to do? And if enough people tell me it's good, I'll do it. Enough people tell me it's not good, I won't do it. And that's how I'm going to make my decisions in life, right? That's not enough. That's not going to get you there. That's not going to get you to a place where you're actually accomplishing what you ought to be accomplishing. So without the judges, without the counselors, we're not going to get to that place where the sorrow and groan is going to go away because we're doing the right thing and because the oppression has left us. Right? It's not enough just to say, well, I'm going to do the right thing. That's never going to work. Okay, and um, can you also touch a little bit on the, uh, I mean, given that we are in Elul, um, you know, in Tishrei, we're going to say HaMelech HaMishpat. Can you touch on, you yeah. know, why, what's the difference here? Yeah, 
Yeah, Rip Schwab actually does point that out. So the language that we finish typically, as we say, Baruch Hashem, Melech Mishpat. Blessed are you, Hashem, the God, the King, who loves tzedakah and mishpat, righteousness and judgment. In other words, we're, we're keeping them somewhat equally aligned with each other. We're even saying righteousness before we say judgment. But what happens is, then what? Then we during Elul we switch that. During Elul, what we say is Hamelech Hamishpat, right? The King of Justice, King of Judgment. We Isn't take out it Tishrei? You said in Elul. It's not Elul. No, it's not even Tishrei, really. Sorry, it's just a Saras Mechuva, actually, right? It's just Rosh Hashanah. So depending, yeah, yeah, Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, yes. So we say HaMelech HaMishpat, the King of Judgment. So so what's that all about? Why is why are we saying over there the King of Judgment, right? So, so the answer is the reason why we're switching it to the King of Judgment is because Rosh Hashanah and Kippur is a very is a special time. Rosh Hashanah and Kippur is indeed a time that the king is switching from just being the king who loves righteousness and judgment. We need to recognize right now Hashem is sitting on the, the throne of judgment, so to speak. Right? And because he is sitting on the throne of judgment, there is a more I don't know, call severe, but there is more of a sense of trepidation, more of a sense of right this minute, our lives are hanging in the balance. And therefore, we want to focus more on the judgment aspect than the tzedakah aspect. Because there needs to be a sense of, of awesomeness, of, of trepidation, of, of fear, so to speak. Okay? Um, yeah, so that's the end of, of lesson number uh, 12. If you want to ask, right? There, there's something else that I want to I wanna just say over an idea that I, I was thinking of yesterday. So, so fine. So Queen Elizabeth passes away, right? And it's the end of an era for many people. I mean, for her, for sure. And then also for, uh, you know, in general, the end of an era. And so what I saw something interesting that um, Prince, Prince Charles or King Charles, I don't know when that switches. I saw something interesting that his wife said. She said, somebody asked her, maybe two years ago, I think he was 70 or something. And somebody asked her, is he ready? Is he ready to become the king? And she said, she she knows it's his destiny, and he knows it's his destiny, and he's been preparing for it his entire life. And because he's been preparing for it his entire life, the moment is not going to be too big for him. Okay, nice idea. To me, that's a terrible, terrible point. Why? What's so terrible about that statement? What's terrible about that statement is, you basically just said you have a man who is 70 years old, and he has not come to do his mission in this world until his mother passes away. Then he's going to accomplish his mission in this world, which is to be a ceremonial head of state. Is that really the purpose of life, is to be a ceremonial head of state? And if you never make it there, then you didn't even accomplish your mission in life, right? When you define life as this very, very specific goal that you have in mind, and when you get to that goal, then you're going to be accomplishing your destiny, right? It's a terrible, terrible mistake that we make in life. And we all do this, right? When I go on vacation, then I'm, it's going to be awesome. When I uh, retire, then life is going to be great. When I go back to work, then life is going to be great, right? And we think that that's our destiny. That's our mission. But of course, what's the reality? The reality is that our mission, our destiny is every single moment, right? We say, right? This is the day. This, not that. This is the day that Hashem has made. We shall rejoice and be happy in it, right? You can't say to yourself, my destiny is all, all the way down there in the future. 
right? When you say my destiny is all the way down there in the future, you know what happens? You never get there. You never realize you've never accomplished your mission. You've never actualized your potential on a regular basis because it's always about the future. It's always about then, then, there, there. Yaakov Galinsky says that when Hashem, the, the Gemara really says this point, when Hashem gave the Jews the Torah, he lifted up the mountain, right? Harsina, he lifted it up, he held it over their heads. And he says, if you accept the Torah, mutav, good. And if not, sham teheik furaschem. Over there will be your death and your graves. Okay, what's that all about? Big conversation. Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky points out, you know why it says sham over there? Why doesn't it say po or kan? He picked up the mountain, it's right over their heads. Accept the Torah good. If not, sham over there will be you, your grave. Not out sham, right here. Right? Kan, po. So he says like this. He says, you know why it says sham? You know what's going to be your grave? What's going to be your grave is when you constantly say in life, when I get there, then I'm going to change. I know I have to change. And I know I have the capacity to change. And I know I need to do it. I'm not going to do it today. You know, I'm not going to start my diet today. I'll start my diet tomorrow. I have chocolate cake tonight. I'm not going to start my diet today. I have haagen in the freezer. Tomorrow I'll start my diet, right? We all know what happens then, right? So it's this attitude of saying, shum over there. It's this attitude of saying, my destiny awaits me somewhere in the distant future, off in a galaxy, right? No, 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 no. Zehayom Hashem. This is the day that Hashem has made for change. It's it. There's no other day. Today is the day. Right? Or not, right? Over there, that will be the people who constantly are saying, over there, over there, over there, over there, my destiny is over there, over there, over there. It's not going to end well. It's not going to end well at all. That that was my takeaway from um, Mrs. Mrs. I don't know, the, the Queen Consort, I guess they call her. Yeah. Yeah. That's my that's my takeaway. Um, and Ella, Ella was a good time. Yeah. Ella was a good time for us to focus on these ideas. There's no better time than now. And certainly that's true about Ella, about doing Teshuvah. Yeah. Okay. Take care, guys. Be well. Have a great Shabbos. We'll see you.